Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Easy Conversations, a podcast about having easy conversations. I'm your host, Furkan Dandia. In this week's episode, I sit down with Richard Dolan, who's a therapist based in the UK. Uh, Rich and I touch on a lot of topics that are quite relevant right now, especially in this pandemic world. We talk about being parents, uh, divorce, uh, mental health in general, but even from just uh, the lockdowns and uh, social media and how social media contributes to a lot of the mental health issues we see. Um, I hope you can get a lot of, out of this episode uh, because I did. And if you could leave a review at the end, I would truly appreciate it. All right, Rich, uh, welcome to the podcast. Take, uh, thank you for reaching out and uh, taking the time to, to come on here and have this conversation with me. Super grateful. And, you know, I've been, <laughs> I've been really amazed by how we've connected and some of the conversations mm. we already have had. So this is not our first time chatting and, and I feel like we have a lot in common. So that's, you know, again, super, it's amazing. <laughs> for me personally but yeah I wanted to take the opportunity first you know if you could introduce yourself and uh yeah and then we'll just get right into it sure um yeah and thank you for having me on it is kind of crazy how we've connected over the past uh past few weeks and interesting talking to people about Instagram and social media being a kind of a negative thing but what I've found is that you know I've made some really good connections like yourself so there's a lot of opportunity there um so my name is Richard Dolan. I'm in the UK. I'm a, I'm a therapist in private practice. One of the things that really kind of stood out when I saw your uh, your page uh, was the, the, the podcast you were doing. And I think I said to you, I was, I was having trouble sleeping the other night. So I kind of found myself sat in the dark in my kitchen with the, with the hot drink uh, the other night. And I listened to it and it was the one about divorce. And that really resonated with me because I've been through that myself. And I just thought, well, this is someone that's having these conversations that I don't feel are happening enough, you know, or are um, they're not kind of endorsed by celebrities or, um, you know, personalities. So we're, we're not hearing them, but it was something I felt that I might be able to add some value to and kind of reflected on my story and my journey. Mm -hmm. So I literally tapped out a stream of consciousness email to you um, about how I've kind of got here. And I, I guess the whole journey has brought me to this this point of understanding who I am and I'm seeing that in a lot of people I know you know were, were maybe what's happening at the moment around the world the pandemic there's an awful lot of introspection you know self-reflection uh, particularly amongst men uh, particularly amongst men in my sort of generation my age I'm 43 mm -hmm. uh, and it's a strange strange time uh, to be a man and to, to be a middle-aged man for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I think one of the biggest reasons why we've been able to connect and have these discussions is because we're probably, you know, again, same age group, uh, kind of the same, um, I would say, you come to these realizations in life, right? And, and unless you've been there, it's hard to explain. And, and there's several things I wanted to like tap into uh, with you today. Uh, and we'll definitely get to the pandemic. But one of the biggest things, uh, at least I saw in your post and one of your posts I wanted to get into is, 
is coming to that point in your life where you finally decide to choose yourself and and all along you've been like you feel like okay I've been doing what I've been told to do or what I've been raised as okay this is what everyone does and then you kind of come to that it's almost like this <laughs> and, and I'm basically explaining what happened to me as well but you come to this point in your life where you're like what am I doing like whose life am I living am I yeah. living my own life or am I living someone else's idea of what life should be absolutely and, yeah. and I feel like you made that comment in your post with you know being a zombie in a movie <laughs> but being able to take those risks that you may not have taken before. And I think for you as well, the catalyst was going through a divorce and recognizing that, you know, living authentically means making those difficult choices. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was, you know, the thing that kind of stood out to me about the the episode of yours that I was listening to. And that question about whose life am I living? You know, is it my life? Is it the life of, um, you know the expectations of society or my parents or whatever I think we're asking that of ourselves much more openly and readily now you know our attitudes to um you know questioning our mental health are are much more open now and I think a lot of people are kind of stopping in their tracks and thinking well you know what's happening whereas before you know previous generations we did as you say kind of do what was expected of us you know we didn't really think about it too much so I think my journey to choosing myself as you say started a long long time before I realized it and it probably happened around about the time of my parents divorce and you know the, the impact that that had on the, uh, the the way my life went over the next sort of 10 years or so it's only in recent years and through my own sort of therapy and journey to become a therapist that I've understood what happened there but I just kind of um, yeah I was just kind of going through the motions I didn't really have you know, a, a goal or a plan. I bought a I bought a property very early out of necessity. It was at a time when the property market was crazy in the UK. So they were kind of giving away mortgages, you know. It's inconceivable to think of how easy it was to get a mortgage in comparison yeah. to now. And uh, I I remember actually, and this is something I've, I've, I'm going to talk about on Instagram at some point, but I had a huge sense of imposter syndrome because all of a sudden I'd gone from, you know, being a kind of an 18, 19 year old, and I was just 21. And all of a sudden, I had my own, uh, my flat or apartment, as, as you would call it. And I had this, this fear that I was going to get a phone call or a knock at the door any minute with somebody saying that they'd made a mistake with the paperwork. And I had to, you know, I had to get my stuff and go because it just felt like this huge, like, um, responsibility that I didn't, I didn't feel worthy of. So I was just kind of, you know, working to live and going through the motions and, condensing you know many years um in, into a few sentences here you know it kind of fell into the routine of okay you know, met somebody yeah it, it wasn't great but it kind of worked you know I didn't realize at the time but I had issues around my own self-worth and mm -hmm. you know that influenced um sort of what happened in the relationship and yeah you just kind of do what's expected of you I've been together x number of years okay when you're getting married are you gonna have kids buy a house so that kind of carried on until everything sort of came crashing down um partly through you know who i was and um and who i was trying to be and the, the same same for her as well I, I was seeing it happen all around me and that that point which 
led to me being the zombie in the film and for people listening that was actually a real thing it's not a kind of a metaphor I was actually a zombie in in the film and it was a, a really kind of random experience but it was such a spontaneous thing that it stopped me in my tracks and made me think what am I doing with my life why am I not living the life that I want to live and how long have I been like living this this idea of a life that isn't actually bringing me any joy or happiness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, 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 and I, yeah that was the point everything changed yeah yeah no i appreciate that i i think uh, obviously people can't see but i have like this big smile on my face because i because <laughs> <laughs> everything you're mentioning rich i i feel like i can pretty much align with because i've went through a very very similar journey you know like i finished school I moved across the country for work and bought my property because that's what everyone was doing at the time. Um, You know, met someone, decided to get married. Same thing. Like, it just didn't feel like, okay, you know, because again, you watch movies and you have this ideology of what love is, what a relationship is. And this is not like any knock on who I was with or, or myself. It's just it didn't feel like it didn't feel right but in the moment it was like well this is what i'm meant to do i'm supposed to get married and i'm supposed to have a family and you're supposed to do it and you don't really question it because we grew up not questioning it yeah yeah and but at the same time you know when you look at it from from another lens it wasn't role modeled for us right no no, it, well, well, what was modelled was um, was to kind of project what you wanted, or to um, to be grateful for what you had, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. to accept to accept your lot, to not, you know, to not. Um, I, I guess today's um, kind of way of describing it would be to stay in your lane, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of, you know, don't if where you come from dictated where you went, mm-hmm. you know, so. Um, yeah, there was there was a, a definitely a, a modelling from our parents, and they had it from their parents too, but it didn't promote the idea that there was something more, or that you could aspire to something more, or that you know the, the concept of choosing yourself. Just I don't remember anything like that growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I remember having those conversations with my parents, and they're like, "No, no, there's no such thing as choosing yourself. You, mm. we never chose ourselves. We worked hard. We, you know, like." my mom was stay at home. My dad was the one working, paying the bills. He's like, we did everything for our kids. Yeah. And, and it was almost like this expectation was passed down that you're going to do everything for your kids. And, yeah. and I remember having that kind of, again, realization at one point where I'm like, how am I role modeling for my son? Am I role modeling that you just have to like, you know, you're not happy in life, but you just stick it out because that's yeah. what you're expected to do. Or you choose your happiness because I didn't have that courage earlier in my life until I went through that whole journey of mm-hmm. self-realization and kind of the same thing as you uh, going through the motions, you know, starting to learn about psychology and now trying to become a therapist in the future. So I think for me it's very similar kind of the journey we've been on but uh yeah yeah i think for me it was also important to be able to role model that for my son and 
Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And, and as a parent now to two, two young girls, five and ten, uh, I consider that to be my biggest responsibility. I mean, yet, yeah, as I say, I'm a therapist and I've worked within health and care for you know nearly 15 years now in various roles. Take it very seriously, very passionate about it. And, you know, it, it is where I'm meant to be professionally. Mm-hmm. But all of that comes second to... Yeah, the the responsibility that I have to my to my family and to my daughters, and it is hard to know what you know what the right thing to do is, um, you know, what the right behaviours are to model because the world is changing so fast, and I didn't learn any of this from my parents because what they taught me has has no real bearing, uh, you know, on the world the way it is today. You know, to be to be fair to them, the right values were there. You know, I consider that I grew up with the right values, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't really ever have to. I, I grew up with a lot, a lot of privilege. There's no doubt about that. Um, there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of heartache. Uh, you know, there were difficult times, and we certainly, you know, didn't have a, a fantastically easy life. But by comparison, yeah, I, I have to be honest. There was, you know, privilege there. But um, what you just talked about that whole kind of not not choosing yourself or um, the idea that you know happiness was 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 a commodity that you didn't um you didn't aspire to yeah it wasn't ever kind of talked about in in a way of the, the way that, that i feel were were encouraged or expected to do as parents today you know mm-hmm. there's almost a judgment that comes uh mm-hmm. upon you as a parent if you are not going out of your way to empower your kids to you know to be whatever it is that they want to be so it's kind of flipped completely yeah. the other way now you know well it's funny because i you know before we move on one last thing i want to touch on this subject though is from like our parents generation when they see us again there's another form of judgment that they pass on and it's you know i mean my parents don't say it and and i don't think they feel it anymore but at one point i could feel like you know they almost felt like i was being entitled or selfish for choosing for having this concept of choosing myself and you know for them it was almost like what do you mean you're choosing yourself we didn't choose ourselves we did everything for the family so so you not only have that pressure of being a parent yourself and and empowering your children you also have this this judgment that's being passed on to you uh in a way by society like i think the, the 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 there is that shame that comes with divorce even now as as common as it is there's it's still there's still that stigma attached to divorce right and, oh and yeah it's a it's a ugly word the connotations for sure yeah yeah but it's not you know it's such a conflicting message because Everywhere you hear for success, everyone's like, well, you've got to fail. If you don't fail, you're not going to learn. And through failure is how you appreciate your successes. But then when the subject of divorce comes up, it's like, well, no, 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 no. It's a completely different lens on it. Meanwhile, you can't look at it as a learning experience, just like everything else. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I think um, it's almost like that's an exception to this idea that failure yep. is positive. You know, and as you say, we hear about it a lot in sort of startup culture. You know, fail hard, fail mm-hmm. fast. Every failure is a step closer to success. All these kind of things, which you know, yeah, you can you can look at it um, from one side and, and say, yeah, these are sort of positive um, kind of affirmations around the, the the growth that you're experiencing. Um, 
you could look at it the other side and say whether well, they're kind of you know ways to to not fully own um and be accountable for yep. the choices you made that led to that failure but yeah but but divorce well that's that's bad that's bad and i, I think because it um it relates to that kind of, you know, that, that tribal thing, that union, you know, it is, mm. it is about the creation of a family, you know, and that's the thing that's never meant to, to fail, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or to, to fail at um, having a family. It's almost like to fail at being a human in a way, because we're so mm-hmm. conditioned to see that, that unit, that family unit, or that, that tribe, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, if you can't keep, if you can't keep your tribe together, then what sort of human being are you? you know mm-hmm. um and i fully fully hear the shame that comes with that and i felt that shame myself and carried it with me for many years around you know not only having um come from a divorced family which was fairly fairly rare certainly i remember growing up um and uh, sorry i remember moving out of the home that, that i shared with my parents into the home um, that my brother and i moved with my mum and there was a stigma you know we were the we were the only kind of single parent family in the street mm-hmm. and i remember after a few months there was a knock at the door and it was a lady um from along the street and, and back then you know kids still played in the street you know mm-hmm. um and we all played together and it was the the mum of one of the other kids and she came along she knocked on the door and she said and i remember standing in the hallway and seeing this conversation happen and my mum had never spoken to this woman in her life uh, but she said um I'm really sorry. I don't know what to do. My husband's left me um, and he wants a divorce. Um, what, what do I do? And so it's kind of like this, this kind of, you know, this stigma that, oh, the, that's the divorced lady with the two kids that lives along the end of the street. Yeah, she has experience. Um, yeah, and that, yeah. that and that just seems so weird to think that that even happened because it's such a yeah. good place then. But yeah, I, I had the shame of kind of coming from that, um, you know, and people at school being kind of critical of that or making those judgments. And then I had the shame of going through it myself. I, you know, not only had I come from that failure, as you say, but then I went on to live that failure when I, I ended up getting divorced myself. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, and I think part of the work we can do is support people through it and, and normalize it. Right. And I, I hope these conversations help. Um, I guess, there was another thing I wanted to touch because you mentioned your two daughters and mm. what I find really fascinating about your story is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is, is, you know, obviously you said you're not, uh, you've told me you're not the biological father of your eldest. And I find that very noble. Um, but at the same time, if I'm being perfectly honest, like I've, I'm not sure for me, like how I would be able to parent two children, one being my own and one not being like biologically my own. And, and what I want to understand is like how you've been able to like set yourself up for success in that situation and some of the things you've done um, to be able to, to manage that. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're talking about that kind of unconditional love thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, And what I would say is that I, I'm probably the last person to be the judge of whether I'm doing it successfully or not, but um, it is definitely something that, that that people have said to me. And, and I think just to put some context around that. So, you know, after I'd been through this whole experience of my divorce and, you know, spent some years, uh, I lost a lot in that process, you know, not, uh, not just financially, but, you know, emotionally as well. It was <clears throat> the, you know, there's a, there's a, a line out of a film 
Fight Club that that really stayed with me. And it was um, you're never free to do anything until you've lost everything, which is kind of uh, you know a little bit uh, a little bit dark. But that's sort of what happened. And and in that, I found a you know a, a liberation. And mm. uh, you know, I was able to kind of start again, not to, not out of choice, but out of necessity. Mm-hmm. So I, I had the choice to decide how how I wanted things to be and, and who I wanted to be. Yeah. So. The choices that I made during that period um, and the the understanding that I came to about myself, I think, is is what enabled me to to be lucky enough to meet my fiance and uh, you know and have the family I do now. But uh, she had tragically lost her husband. Um, they'd been married for for many years and they'd had um, my my, my eldest, um, their first daughter, and uh, he passed away from pancreatic cancer, which was you know I can't even conceive of how terrible that must have been so when uh when we met each other she you know there was a kind of a weird synergy around the timeline of mine and i'm not for a moment comparing the divorce to what she went through but mm-hmm. we had both we'd both experienced loss and we'd both been through the grieving process so that kind of accelerated our understanding of who we were and what we wanted so when we we did meet i think we were both at a point in our lives where we were we were clearer we had you know, greater clarity about um about what the right thing for us was and perhaps able to to you know make those decisions a bit faster so i was incredibly sensitive about the fact that she you know she was a widow and there was this this very young girl involved she was two and uh what i had come to realize uh, at that time was that you know meeting somebody again at this time in life children were going to be a factor and i'd always thought i didn't really want kids or rather i never thought i didn't want them but I didn't want them either, if that made sense. It just hadn't really factored in. And what I realise now is, is you know, a lot of that was about not wanting to replicate my own childhood experiences and, and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I realised that there was a likelihood that I might meet somebody who had children and I needed to kind of get my head around that and be prepared to accept that. And then when, you know, when I obviously met my fiance and, and I realized the sensitivity around that I I knew instantly that she was you know, <laughs> it sounds like such a cliche but I I knew she was the one um mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and I recognized that if that was what I wanted then it was going to require me to make some changes in, in myself and, and accept things in a way which I think you know a lot of people wouldn't necessarily want to do because it meant that they had to put other people first so I thought this this little girl needs it's not just about me and the mum, it's about, you know, the, the, the child as well. You know, she she needs a dad. So if I want to have any shot of this working, I need to be prepared for that to maybe be me, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, luckily enough that happened. But what I experienced was coming into the hole that had been left by somebody who was you know, very much loved. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I experienced an awful lot of projection of that, that grief and that loss. And I could have been anybody. It didn't really, it didn't matter that it was me, but I right. stepped into that, you know, that position. So yeah, the first couple of years of that relationship were, were really challenging because, you know, people move through the grieving process at different phases. There's, there's no timeline on that. Um, so I think I really put my own feelings about this, you know, this unconditional thing to one side. And it was tough because, from my well, my now daughter's point of view, she didn't see me as anything particularly special. There was there wasn't that bond, um, so I just kind of had to 
<laughs> like tell myself don't expect anything back don't want anything back you owed nothing back you know if this is what you want you're just gonna have to suck that up and that's not about you you know this is this is about modeling as you said earlier modeling the right behaviors giving her what she needs and over the years that bond has developed but now that i have two daughters i genuinely love them both as much and i don't treat them uh, any differently and it is not something i've actually had to work hard at and i think that's because it's the right thing if that makes sense mm-hmm. you know and, I, and it's, it's really made me reflect on what unconditional love is and i don't necessarily think it relates to that biological link i think it genuinely is about what you know what it is to truly love somebody and to feel love for somebody and accept them and and everything that comes with it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah no no and i again thank you for sharing all of that i again i'm <clears throat> it's it's really admirable what you've done and you know like and the way you've simplified it um i think another thing you touched on um was going through that process of loss um it, i think that in itself and i'm just speaking for myself but it, it is very humbling right you go through that experience and you know i've i was telling my parents recently too that i'm so grateful for going through that experience as hard as it's been or and you know all the consequences that come from it it's taught me so much about myself but it's also humbled me mm. and and you know i remember being in my 20s or even like late 20s early 30s where i felt invincible you know like i had a <laughs> Uh, yeah. I had a successful career. I had a the house I had dreamed of, the car I was I wanted. I had a family, and it was like I have everything. And then when you go through that process, it just humbles you. You're like, well, no, I didn't have everything because uh, I can lose it like this if I'm not grateful for it, or if I'm not modest about it, or if I'm not appreciative and stuff like that. And I think what I'm trying to get at is when you go through that humbling process in your life um it just opens you up and and i think maybe for you it was also you know taking on this role of being a father all of a sudden uh first time to a two-year-old you probably came in with a much much different perspective than you would have had you not gone through the divorce oh yeah absolutely Uh, and i think you the the key word that you just said there for me is appreciation um you never really appreciate what you've got until until you've lost it until you, until you yeah. don't have it anymore and yeah absolutely humbling I think you know I look back on myself uh, at certain times in my life and it's it's difficult it's hard to look back at that person there's there's an arrogance about that person that you know the folly of youth we think we know everything it's you know it's that kind of cliche but the process of of you know going through loss and, and having to look in the mirror and recognize you know your part in it and and genuinely be accountable be responsible not these kind of twee affirmations that we see on social media you are beautiful you are loved no sometimes we are we're not very nice sometimes we make mistakes sometimes we treat people badly and sometimes we get it wrong and i get things wrong every day mm-hmm. you know and you know one of the things that i that i really try hard to do now is apologize a lot to <laughs> well yeah. I, I try not to apologize a lot because that means i'm i'm getting it wrong a lot but i don't really remember my parents ever apologizing to me you know yeah and uh, and i remember being left with a 
Um, and sorry, mum, dad, if you, if you hear this, I'm really not, I'm really not gunning for you guys, but I remember, you know, this kind of feeling of, but, but that's not fair. There was, you know, you, that was, that was wrong of you to say that or to do that, you know? So I really try hard now with my kids to, to, to kind of be accountable for my own behavior and say, listen, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have shouted or I shouldn't have said that, or I, you know, what I, what I meant was, um, because I want them to grow up knowing that it, that's actually, you know, that, that's a, that's a, there's a strength of character in being able to admit when you're wrong and acknowledge that and recognize when you're projecting onto other people mm-hmm. um yeah, so yeah and i i think what it also does and and i see that with my son is when you're as a parent you're accountable and you're willing to take ownership it also gives them the courage to express themselves because mm-hmm. they know my my parent is not going to be defensive or shut me out. And and that's where for me growing up, because I didn't receive an apology or any ownership, I didn't have the courage to even express myself and be like, Hey, mom or dad, you said this, this is how it made me feel. No, mm-hmm. that was never encouraged. Cause it was like, just suck it up. And again, like you said, I'm not picking on my parents. I'm just, they just didn't have those tools that we do now or the awareness we do now. But by, again, modeling that behavior for our children, what it allows them to do is also be able to express themselves. And and I've had this conversation many times with people that, especially as men, we grow up and we just bottle all those emotions. And And if, like you said, if we're taking ownership and apologizing to our children, we're also giving them that autonomy and empowering them to be able to express themselves. Um, And I've seen that with my son over the last two years, he's way more open to express himself and tell me when I've done something to mess up. And immediately I'm like, you know what, I'm sorry, I messed up and I will do better next time. Yeah. And uh, I don't know what that's like for you, but I I get that my five-year-old the other day, um, you know, she, she keeps me on my toes you know uh, and sometimes I'm like whoa who's the you know who's the parent <laughs> in this exchange you know and I, I never really remember that happening like the other day this is a slight diversion but I was she was asking me you know about being a therapist you know what, what is it you do so I was trying to explain that I you know I help people to uh, kind of explore how they how they feel you know and, and and understand why they feel that way and if they don't feel very good then you know try mm-hmm. and find a way to help them to make themselves feel better and um <laughs> she goes so you can read their brains <laughs> and i said well i said well yeah 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 kind of i guess and then she just kind of looked at me and just said you can't read my brain and like this is a five-year-old and the way yeah. that she said it i was just like well i don't think i can you scare me you know you've got this yeah. kind of self-awareness and i see it in a lot of children these days and yeah i think that they don't take any crap they, they know they can spot inauthenticity a mile off you know mm-hmm. and they they expect uh, adults to be held to account you know mm-hmm. in a way that, that i certainly don't remember and just quickly talking about the generational thing you know it doesn't take that long to go back through my parents their parents yeah my grandparents they grew up you know in in the aftermath of world war Two. Mm-hmm. you know um and we this pandemic that we're going through now is the the, the, the biggest kind of global um, thing since World War Two that that you know ha, has impacted people on such a scale, um, 
and I remember when this this kind of happened back in in March last year uh, you know the first few days but I remember I was in the kitchen I vividly remember it I was making a coffee watching the news and I thought to myself my god this is going to have this is going to leave such a uh, you know such a psychological imprint mm-hmm. that is going to be felt for for years and years to come you know and that was before everything that's actually happened has happened um so you know i think we are in we are on the cusp of of, of psychological change on the scale of which we've never seen mm-hmm. no i and i agree um yeah i mean like in march last year like if i was being perfectly honest i, I think most of us didn't think we'd still be here you know almost a year later um we we obviously we didn't know the timing but the longer this has gone on the impact is just growing right the the, the significance of this is just much larger than we thought it would be and one of the things you and i have talked about um is how much you know as much as we've focused on the 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 health side of this pandemic and staying safe and um isolating and and minimizing the spread we haven't really focused on the aftermath and and the struggle people are seeing right now whether it's depression anxiety um all the mental health challenges that are surfacing and there's still not a lot of conversation around it right like i think people talk about it in their social circles but it's not happening at a larger scale where there's been okay well here's here's resources here's funding here's you know go get therapy there i don't think that's happening at a larger scale no and, and you know i i would be interested to know more about how it's happening uh you know where you are for instance but certainly here it is very much part of the daily narrative you know it's it's been politicized really you know so th- there's no um no getting away from the fact that mental health and mental health support is massively underfunded in this country and it has been you know a, a stick with which you know any government has been beaten for some time and to you know we've got the nhs this wonderful institution that um that looks like one thing to many people but is actually something very very different you know the, the best way i could describe it um would be it's kind of like a franchise you know it's uh, it's not this one big thing that um that is the same everywhere you go it's not like the four seasons where you know the experience is consistent it's like um the starbucks where and we've all been to that starbucks where they are bang on it you know they make your coffee really quick they don't get your name wrong it's clean the service is amazing we've all been to the one where you kind of know that the standards are pretty pretty low you know or the the execution of the the role of the duties is pretty low and and the nhs is a bit like that in that you know it's kind of all these different kind of um different um versions of it that are all kind of doing the same thing but in different ways and they're all sort of set up in competition with each other Mm -hmm. and they are providing you know the bulk of the mental health support which is done largely through uh you know uh, cognitive behavioral therapy the the idea is you you know if you're 
So this is how it works. You're mm -hmm. depressed or you, if you're feeling that way, you go to your GP, you contact your GP. They will then put you on a waiting list uh, for you to get a telephone assessment, which will probably take you know, anywhere between you know, two and, and four weeks maybe to get a telephone call. And off the back of that, you will then get put onto a waiting list for six sessions of CBT, maybe some talking therapy, but it's usually CBT because obviously it's very easy to measure the outcomes and say, well, look, it's working. Um, and in between that, you'll get offered, the first thing you get offered is antidepressants. Okay, so ignoring the fact that when people uh, are at the point of saying, okay, I want to get some help, they've already been dealing with it for a long, long time. They're at that point of crisis. It's not like, oh, I think maybe in six months I'm going to get some therapy. It's I need it now. So they're entering into a system which isn't uh, isn't meeting the need, which is why we're seeing a huge increase in, in private practice, as we have obviously seen in the US, which um, is not regulated over here. You know, you've got you've got different routes to qualification, different levels, and this is actually something that's you know a huge um, bone of contention at the moment in terms of how it how it's not so much regulated, but how the various membership bodies that represent different modalities are vying for power. Um, and it looks as though some form of regulation is coming in in the near future, but. I think if you are going to regulate it or if it's going to be regulated then that has to be that that almost creates the case for funding which the government don't want to do so mm -hmm. there's an awful lot of qualified therapists with different competencies that are having to work voluntarily mm -hmm. in order to get the necessary hours to then apply for accreditation and accreditation is seen as the gold standard for a lot of employers so there's a huge exploitation of it and in amongst it all you've got ever-growing numbers of people that need support with their mental health which we've seen explode over the last year because of you know the, the pressures of lockdown and i'm certainly um you know seeing a huge increase in people getting in touch where you know be it in the initial text or email or conversation the subject of lockdown and the the effects of it are you know the, the primary driver for what's led them to get in touch it might be something they've been carrying for years but lockdown has been that catalyst for people to you know to, to really just get to that point of crisis mm -hmm. yeah i feel like most people on a day-to-day -day basis you know i don't mean to generalize but are able to get through because you've they've got all these distractions right like going to work or going to the gym or going out with friends going for a beer but with the lockdown it's almost like you've had to face the demons right yeah, there's, there's, no, there's escape. no escaping it yeah you're not running away from it and and there's still some people who are struggling and they don't know that they need therapy and then there's the population of people that know they need therapy but they don't go because a they're scared of it or scared of finding out answers or just can't afford it right and and uh to your point a lot of therapists here you know, if they're not registered or, you know, they don't get a lot of clients because clients can't uh, get the, can't claim it through insurance if it's not a registered psychologist. So there's a lot of systemic is issues and I'm hoping, you know, with this pandemic and all the conversations people are having that it is, it starts coming to the surface that we need to do a much better job in this space of mental health whether it's making it affordable or or more widespread like i know where i live here in calgary there's there's tons and tons of therapists but the question then becomes is it affordable 
and yeah, I, and and if you're gonna go for a cheaper option you may not get the quality of uh, therapy that you're seeking right so yeah that's absolutely true i think it's like anything you get what you pay for uh, except that what i mean for the most part i think people that choose to go into therapy do not do so because there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow it, it's a vocational choice you know it's because they for whatever reason i mean you, you've got people that get into it who are perhaps doing it uh for questionable reasons perhaps doing it because they need to feel better about themselves and they that you know the the the, the kind of the helping thing um me personally my reasons for doing it uh, i i started my training back in 2008 i uh, know sorry 2007 mm -hmm. um and then you know life kind of got in the way we talked about it at the beginning that path you know met somebody got married started going through the motions lost sight of that 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 spark that had you know ignited and, and showed me there was something else out there and over the last sort of um you know 12 years or so i've i've working through working my way through health and care i've come back to the realization that actually what this is what i'm meant to do because it's just the way i work you know from a therapeutic sense that's looking through that lens is how the world has always made sense to me um mm. and i'm able to bring the most value to you know to, to people who need it whilst i'm whilst i'm alive you know yeah that, that's doing something that matters but it's difficult for people to to afford it because a lot of people who who perhaps need therapy are below the poverty line you know and they are unable to just look on a directory or, or go online and, and have the uh, again we come back to that word of that word of privilege to, to choose you know who they work with so there are a lot of therapists out there that will work on sliding scales and work less i always i have a set fee but I will always look at the circumstances of the person and you know if, if it's if something they can't afford I look at what can I do I will always create a, you know a degree of capacity to work with people um, you know in an affordable way but mm. as much as I want to do that I still have to look at it from a commercial sense and you know this is my living this is this is something that I'm not a charity and that's where a lot of therapists are really angry at the moment because um, it's kind of like the government are standing back with their arms folded and say, well, you, you, know, you guys want to do it. You guys want to help people. God, we're not stopping you from helping people. And I think just to bring this in, there is the the emergency explosion, certainly on Instagram, of these kind of, you know, self-help, uh, mental health tip um, things. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff out there, but there's also, also a lot of kind of quite uh, ill-informed or ill-advised stuff. Yeah. But it's almost like, well, you guys are you guys are looking after yourselves we've yeah. we've been on instagram we've seen what you're doing you've got yeah. it you got it tell yourself you love each other and you know they're, they're almost letting that kind of happen and grow where we know that social media is really really damaging we know that it has the the um that the power to affect negatively as much as it does positively like yeah. we're talking right now because of social media of course but i we also know handfuls of people that have that have suffered as yeah. a result of social media so yeah yeah i think that they're kind of standing back and, and letting people look after themselves and it's yeah. just not good enough yeah no i i can't stop laughing here uh, i mean <laughs> everything you're saying is very serious but i feel like you're almost like <laughs> you're almost reading my mind you're directing the conversation where i want to go and the next, right. next maybe I can, I... I can read your brain like <laughs> uh, yeah you should tell your daughter that you <laughs> so i did want to like interject earlier so starbucks sure. never well i won't say never but they seldom get my name right 
So I'll put that uh, out there for comedic okay. purposes. <laughs> but yes, I think the social media thing that you've brought up is a perfect segue um, as we get to the end here. But <clears throat> we, you know, you and I have almost, I would say, almost ranted about social media because we are. You know, I think for us, we're trying to get a message across, right, around mental health. And, and, and there's an abundance of people who are also doing the same. And, you know, it's social media, especially like, you know, I think most of us are on Instagram right now. It's, uh, it's a catch-22 almost, right? Like there's a lot of value if you go seek it. Um, which we've talked about being able to connect with people and having these conversations, you know, amazing. Like I wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise, but there's also the, the, the image it creates for people, right? Like for, if I go on social media and I'm having a rough day, I'm stuck at home. I'm, whether I'm not happy with my job or just my living situation and I go see someone's perfect life as they portrayed it on Instagram or, or Facebook or whatever, it's, it does more damage mm -hmm. than benefits. Right. And, and I think we've talked about that. Like, what are your thoughts? Like what's your experience been? And, and do you find that with some of the clients you're working with, like how much of it, that anxiety or, or just depression is driven because of social media? Yeah, it's definitely a factor. Um, personally, I've never really used social media for myself. You know, I, I've um, I've used Twitter for work. I've never really done Facebook. Um, I'm, you know, I'm an introvert. Uh, I don't really like sharing, um, you know, much about myself, which is quite ironic, seeing as I'm sat here talking to you about some, uh, you know, kind of personal stuff. But I guess this is stuff that matters to me. You know, this is actually stuff that. Um, you know, I, I think hopefully some of the people listening to this might be able to relate to or kind of you know, recognize that you know, it is happening in people's lives. But I've got absolutely no interest in sharing what I had for dinner or um, you know, making sure I get that perfect selfie to, um, you know, to kind of look like I've got this amazing lifestyle. But I've started to use it as a therapist because I recognize that, you know, there is a huge um, platform there to connect with with people who are going to social media looking for some sort of answers some sort of guidance you know so yeah i'm a you know I'm, I'm using it from a commercial perspective but what i've experienced is um you know a lot of the clients i've worked with as you said have come with these uh you know the, these negative self um self-image challenges that have been perpetuated by what they see on social media and mm -hmm. The crazy thing is a lot of people that I've worked with are aware of that, you know, they're not, mm -hmm. they, they know that what they're looking at is fake. Um, but I think the, the, the perception of what, what somebody else's amazing life looks like is, uh, is kind of compounded by this validation loop that we get locked in and the dopamine hit, you know? Mm -hmm. So we, we are, is, it, it's like, it's like a legal crack you know and th th this is this is a, a kind of a pandemic in itself you know people are addicted to that dopamine hit you know and it is in the palm of your hand you carry it around with you there's no shame in it you don't have to go around the back of a building and take a hit off the crack pipe you you are 
you're, you're on your phone the whole time you know and mm-hmm. it's not just um it's you know it's not just instagram it's it, it, it's the way in which we communicate is becoming increasingly built on validation and acceptance mm-hmm. and going back to what we talked about at the beginning about bringing up you know two two young girls it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about girls or boys but bringing up young children into a world which is increasingly becoming um superficial uh, and the, the the currency is something that's so disposable you know if you haven't proved your worth or value by the metrics that are currently used to determine it within 15 seconds you're you're at the bottom of the pile um i yeah, I worry about how to counter that. Yeah, mm-hmm. as a parent, as a parent from a generation that never had to deal with that. In fact, mm-hmm. I posted something on Instagram the other day about what the world was like when I was sixteen and where I was at. But I, I kind of can't even conceive of how challenging I would have found that world if we had the things that kids have to deal with today. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And yeah, it's yeah, it's scary. And, and part of the problem also. It, it becomes almost perpetual in the sense that because of the algorithms they have going on in the background, you know, if you search for something negative, I mean, you can consider it negative if I'm searching for the way someone looks and I feel less than because of this, the way people look a certain way, the the algorithms are going to keep throwing that information at me. And it's just going to keep, I'm going to keep sinking deeper and deeper and deeper without even yeah. knowing what's going on because yep. it's it's just feeding that story or that message for me and i'm just like yeah okay here we go again here we go again and i think that's part of the problem is even though people are maybe aware they've they're sometimes they've gone so deep that they don't know how to get back out absolutely and you can apply that to any kind of addiction if you look at alcoholism or any yep. any, any drug addiction you know very rarely do you come across an addict who isn't aware that they're an addict you know mm-hmm. so so that's what we're dealing with we're, we're dealing with an addiction but because you know much like and the attitude to this has changed uh you know in recent years with with smoking and tobacco you know that's now considered to be you know a negative thing that we mm-hmm. recognize that it's bad for us you know we kind of laugh at how uh you know it used to be uh, you know recommended back in the sort of the 50s but we we know that um we know that that's that's kind of bad and it is acceptable it's an acceptable form of addiction because we're all in so deep now that we always can't go back you know because actually the world is built on mm-hmm. um on that the level of connectivity that social media provides you know, the way in which we communicate now has irrevocably been changed and it's hard to see how we can get out of this hole that we've dug ourselves and then you have to ask the question have we dug the hole or has the hole been dug for us you know yeah yeah no i i think i mean the analogy is great because you think about it like <laughs> there was a time when people would smoke on planes and in restaurants mm-hmm. and in public and and now it's almost like because of the changes we've experienced in society it's almost like someone that smokes even outside you immediately they feel shamed <laughs> oh yeah totally there's a, a really really strong um you know kind of element of shame with that yeah but with social media right now it is scary and um again i uh 
yeah, you and I've talked about it. It's, it's how do you find the positivity in it and get the value that it's meant to have Mm -hmm. without the negativity or do you just accept it and find balance? Yeah, it's a really good question and not one that I, I should, I'm sure I know the answer to. I mean, uh, so, you know, my experience so far, and I know that we've talked about this, I'm certainly not immune to the dangers of it, you know, and it's something I've had to be really mindful of because, you know, you, you, you kind of used to hear those things sort of thinking back to the 80s, you know, about heroin. Oh, you only need to try it once to get addicted. All you need to do is post once or twice and get a few likes and you are going to get that that dopamine hit you're going to get that validation it feels good you're being accepted you know you are throwing your kind of throwing your hat in the ring you're 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 shouting out to the tribe that that we all belong to and you're being allowed to get closer to the fire and you know you wouldn't be human if you didn't experience some kind of thing obviously i think uh, it depends on you as an individual and all of the things that we've talked about uh, this evening um, as to how how important that is to you but you will have a reaction so you've got to be really careful if you're going to if you're going to dip your toes in that water you've got to be prepared you know to swim against the current because it will it will take you um you know where it wants you to go um unless you're strong enough to navigate it and i think it's very easy for you to get into that water without any awareness of of how strong that current is you know Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think the, the the things you mentioned around likes and follows, it's all validation. And at the end of the day, we as humans need validation. But mm-hmm. it's being able to understand the, the superficial nature of it, and mm-hmm. and not letting it create this false sense of I don't know this false identity, basically. Yeah, and and, the- and I think most people like get fall into that trap because it's created this false sense of identity for them it allows them to be someone else um it's almost like putting on a mask right and mm, and absolutely. It, it's detrimental to your relationships your friendships a lot of things right mm. so you're absolutely right and you know i think the more that we wear that mask the less time we spend being ourselves and, you know, we do need validation as humans. The key, and, you know, this is where therapy, from, from my perspective, is is really, really valuable, is that it can help you to validate yourself. If you can validate yourself, then you don't need it from somewhere else, which makes mm-hmm. you immune to all the things that are trying to kind of, you know, get you hooked on that validation. So, um, so yeah, it, it all comes back to that self-acceptance, that self-actualization. And, you know, something that I, uh, it's, it's certainly been a theme of the content that I've posted. And it's something that I, you know, absolutely champion and advocate. And I remember just the other day, I had a big conversation with my girls about this. Be yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. might not like yourself, but you can work on that. You can figure out why you don't, and you can, you can work on that, and you can learn to like yourself. But when I started being myself choosing myself that's when my life changed for the better mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's <laughs> we can talk about this for hours uh, i think <laughs> it's the whole existential nature of accepting yourself and being comfortable in your skin and unfortunately it's not that easy um, no. obviously if it was people wouldn't be struggling nor would they be um, caught in this whole 
loop of social media and seeking that uh, acceptance or validation. So it is, it's a deep topic. And I think just bringing awareness to it is probably the best we can do. Uh, Absolutely. Just just to make that make that point, you you captured it perfectly earlier when you talked about that humbling experience. You know, that's where the growth is. You know, mm-hmm. that that going through those experiences are are where we learn about who we really are. And accepting yourself doesn't mean um, pretending that there's nothing bad about you. You know, mm-hmm. we are none of us are perfect. There are all th- things that we've done, choices we've made that we would regret or we change and accepting yourself is about you know the the bad and the good and that comes back to balance and I think you 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 talked about balance in in relation to social media and I think that applies to life really you can't have good without bad yeah absolutely and I again like I said I'm grateful for going through that because I'd rather be making mistakes every day and learning from them and improving rather than living in a world where I feel like I'm not making mistakes yeah um it's it's not a good place to be (laughs) yeah there's a lesson in every mistake and i think some people just keep making the same mistake until that lesson is yeah is learned you know Mm -hmm. exactly well rich uh you know again this has been a great conversation time flew by i really enjoyed it i know it's been a pleasure (laughs) but for people that want to get a hold of you uh you know or kind of follow your content what's the best place to find you uh yeah so i kind of feel a bit dirty about saying this now that we've just been uh you know doing down <laughs> social media but but I, I am out there so uh, you can you can check out my website that's uh, checkyourhead.co.uk uh or get me on instagram and twitter that's checkyourheaduk so uh, if you want to um get a different perspective on mental health um have a look at some of the stuff i've put out there i think you know there's definitely a message in it if you if you want to have a look yeah Yeah. No, thanks again, Rich. No, I appreciate it. Take care. Well, that's the end of the episode. Thank you again for tuning in and uh, showing your support. Until next week.